This evening we are going to continue um, in Philippians. So we're, last month we looked at the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2. Um, so if you've got a Bible with you, if you've got a phone with you and would like to open up, we're going to be reading this evening Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 to 18. And it reads as follows. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad... And rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words to us this evening. Lord, would you open our hearts? Lord, would you speak to each and every one of us? Would you challenge us? Lord, and would something uh, of what we hear tonight uh, play a part in your transforming work in our life? Amen. So last week, eh, last week, last month, we looked at the first 11 verses eh, of this book. And we looked at three of the characteristics. Firstly, we looked at the unity eh, that we can have as Christians. Eh, and then we looked at three of the characteristics eh, of the God that we should seek to emulate, that we should seek to imitate in our lives. And those three were to put others before ourselves, to serve others, eh, and to sacrifice for others. There are three traits that we see in our servant king, in our God that came to earth as a servant. And we rounded that off by looking at the reward which is ours in Christ, that reward of eternity spent with Christ. We looked at the rich language that Paul uses in this, the fact that God has highly exalted the name above all names, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And tonight we continue that uh, into these verses. So what Paul does is he gives us this example of Christ and in these verses we're looking at tonight, he applies it. He gives it to the Philippians and says, here you go, go and do something with this. The first word, uh, the first word, the first word in these verses, the word therefore, shows us this break, that this is one passage but what he's saying is we've gone from the example and now we're in to the application. So let's dive into the first verse and we see something of our purpose in here. It reads, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, we hear these words, these words of endearment from Paul that show us how much he loves the Philippian church. Again, my beloved is how he opens this. So everything that he's saying here, he's saying to them in love. He's saying this to them because he loves them. It's not a command, it's not harsh truth, he's not rebuking them, but he's correcting them in love. 
And what he's saying to us here is when Paul was with the church in Philippi, they were obedient to his teachings. And more importantly, they were obedient to the gospel of Christ. This is the foundation of the church. Um, And he's reminding them that they are an obedient people. And he urges them and he expects something of their continued obedience. We know that Paul's physical unity wasn't possible. He wasn't able to be with uh, the church at the minute because of his imprisonment. But that doesn't matter. He still expects them to act in the same way. He expects unity and he expects courage. This really is an encouragement to them. And I was thinking a little bit about encouragement this week. Did you know that 79% of people who quit their jobs cite a lack of appreciation as their reason for leaving? I wonder what a bit more encouragement in the workplace might do to that statistics. I really like this next one. Um, But there was a, a, a golfing personal trainer, a golfing tutor, that played 10 games with three golfers and he encouraged them as they went round in every hole. And each player's shot was 1.78 times better than it was beforehand. I don't know if you've ever been to the gym with a personal trainer, and it's great, you feel on top of the world, and then you go back again on your own, and you're like, how on earth did I do that? But again, it's because you've got somebody next to you that's giving you these encouragements. It's the same again in children's education, that when children are in encouraging environments, that's where we see children flourish. And according to my wife, if you speak to plants encouragingly and are nice to them, apparently they grow better. I'm not, I'm not with you on that one. Paul moves on to say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What goes in must go out. It's as simple as that. God's grace enters us. And the outworking of that comes out the way. This isn't saying go and work for your salvation. This is saying because we are saved... Show it. Go and do something with it. Don't keep it to yourself, but work it out. Take this incredible gift of salvation that God has given to us and go and do something with it. There's such a beautiful coming together in this. Something of the sovereignty of God at work in us, yet the free will that we have to go and outwork it, to go and do something with it. I think there's this beautiful balance that shows something brilliant on that subject in this. That yes, we are saved entirely by the grace of God. That we play no part in that. But we're to do something with it. We're to go and we're to work it out. We know that God works in us. God nurtures us. He cleanses us. He restores us to who we should be. He matures us. Yet in all of that, we have a part to play. That's my first question for you tonight. What's going in? What we give in is what goes out. What is going in? What is filling your brain? What is filling your head? What's interesting in this is Paul isn't talking so much of the personal here, but he's talking something of the community here. He's talking about the salvation of the community of the church. So he's telling them that you need to go and work together and you need to go and do something. I love that. I love that there's something of the church in this that we don't just go and outwork this in isolation. I think we can be so bad for that to think that this is me, I'm on my own and I've just got to go and do something. We know that there's problems in this church. We read about them quite a lot eh, last time and Paul is urging them to go and work it out. 
Work it out amongst themselves. He's saying, you are the people of God. Go and act like it. He tells them that there's a responsibility, that we have a responsibility to pursue obedience. Why? So that we can grow in holiness, so that we can grow into the people that God is creating us to be. We must allow God to work in us. We're going to look in a little bit at the primary tools that God uses to work in us. As we move into verse 13, it reads, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How reassuring is that? For it is God who works in you. Not me doing it myself and hoping God shows up, but it's God that works in us. It's not about you, it's about God. It's incredible that this God, our all-powerful, our incredible God, comes into this earth, transforms our lives, and continues to transform us. He doesn't come to us on the day of salvation and then says, see you later. But we serve a God who continues to transform us. And as we examine ourselves, as we take time to look at ourselves, we should see progress. We should see something of our growing closer in holiness, in our journey, in our sanctification towards God. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility as the people of God to work it out. We have a responsibility of God to do something with the good news of Christ. We know that God is working in us. Constantly producing good works and spiritual fruit. And there's a principle here that God works in us. That we must allow God to work in us so that he can work through us. We see this principle throughout scripture in guys like Moses and David, the apostles and others. That God had a special purpose for each of these people to go and fulfill each one of them completely unique. It took God 40 years to bring Moses to the place where he could use him and use him to lead the people of Israel. As Moses tended the sheep for those 40 years, God was working in him so that one day he might work through him. One of the greatest pieces of wisdom I was given before I came into ministry was God will judge the man, not the ministry. And I think that's a great principle that God cares so much more about who I am than what I do. We could have this fantastic, all shiny, great looking thing. But if our hearts are in the right place, that means nothing. When I stand before the throne of God on judgment day, God cares about who I am. God cares about what's in me. God cares about where my heart is. Their working of that should be in line with what is inside me. But ultimately, God cares about what is inside us. The power that works in us is the Spirit of God. When we surrender ourselves to the power, to the power of the Spirit of God, our obedience becomes something we strive for rather than this constant battle, rather than this constant slog that we just wish we could get better at, that we just wish could go away. Is living a life that is obedient to God a challenge? Of course it's a challenge, but is it 
a struggle? Do you struggle to delight in obedience of God? Do you look at the standards of God, what God asks of us, and think, how's that fair? I don't want to give up certain things. I want to keep going for me. It's not fair that God can ask that of me. And if that's true, if there are areas of your life that are like that, you need to surrender it to God. Obedience should be a delight for us. And when it's not, we need to surrender that area. We need to surrender our entire lives to God. I was having to think about some of the tools that God uses to work in us. The primary vehicle in which God uses to speak to us is his word. God gives us this incredible book, the most vibrant book. The book that is the inerrant, the infallible word of God. In 1 Thessalonians it says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. Says it all. Straightforward as that, that this is the word of God, not the word of men, and it is at work in all of those who believe. All around us today, throughout the church, we see such a diminishing of the scriptures. We see such a diminishing of the scriptures in the theological world of so many theologians that want to rationalize, that want to do away with, that don't want to understand things, that want to destroy its value, want to destroy its worth, that want to blaspheme God in the process of that. You know, there's so many things, there's so many things I've heard that just disgust me when people talk about the scriptures. The way that people regard them. And my question with that is if we do not appreciate the word of God, how do we expect to receive God? If we're told that the primary vehicle God uses to work in us are the scriptures and the books lying closed, how do we receive God? The second briefly is prayer. We must pray. We must be a people that never cease to pray. Our God is a God that is in constant communication with us. A God that wants to hear from us. Build routines. Whatever you need to do, whatever works for you, pray. Pray and don't stop praying. And the third thing that God uses is he uses suffering. The Spirit of God works in us in incredible ways when we suffer for the glory of God. The fires of life, they burn away the dross, they refine us, they make us more into the image of God. And Paul is a great example of this. The word of God, prayer and suffering are three tools that God uses in our lives. I love this quote, just as electricity must run through a conductor, so the Holy Spirit works through the means God has provided. The more we read the more we pray, the more we become like Christ. The more the world opposes us, the more we suffer. But it's all for the glory of God. We'll move into the next couple of verses. Uh, Verses 14 to 16 that read, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast 
to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. It sounds so straightforward. It sounds so easy. It should be so easy. But we all know that it's not. Especially before that coffee, first thing on a Monday morning when somebody asks you, how are you doing? I grumble a lot if David speaks to me before my first coffee. But this is a warning. This is a warning to Paul's friends. This, is, this statement is more about the relationships with each other than with the relationships with God. He's saying, don't grumble, don't dispute. You've got a problem, go and work it out. There's an issue, go and sort it, go and deal with it, go and tackle it head on and sort it. Don't just sit in the background and grumble and moan, but go and do something about it if you've got a problem. I wonder what we would look like if that's what we did. Instead of grumbling, instead of moaning, we just got up and we went and sorted the problem. We went and did something about it. Verse 15 is really straightforward. The Philippians are called to get their own house in order. They're called to make themselves right with God so that they can become an incredible witness and community for God. I love these words in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, we talk about scripture being the prophetic voice. If you want anything prophetic, that's it. That's it. That in this world round about us, what better way is there to sum up the world that we live in than a crooked and twisted generation? How much do we see that we despise? How much do we see that we just cry out to God and say, God, when will it end? God, when will the pain end? When will the suffering end? Lord, when will it end? But I love these words among whom you shine as lights in the world. That doesn't mean go build a commune and go and sit yourself down there. Go and run away from it. It doesn't tell us to be in it. It doesn't tell us to do what this crooked and twisted generation are doing, but it tells us to be among it. We must be a people, a people of God that are among the difficult situations in order that we might go and we might shine as lights in the world I think it's a fantastic word this word among we're to be the beacon of hope we carry the message of hope into this world and that is what we are called to do and in all of that hold fast to the word of life hold God close because it's a big and it's a bad and it's a dangerous world out there but that's what we do We cling to God and we go. Paul gets it. Paul gets that it's all about our transformed lives, going and transforming lives. How insular can we be? You look at these words and ah, it's so hard sometimes to read this and to put yourself into this. How much do we wish that we could hide from the sinfulness of the world? against these abhorrent acts that are against God, that rebel against God. But instead, we are called by God to live among what is difficult. We are called to live, we are placed in this world. There's a great contrast in this. 
The world moans, the world grumbles, but we must be a people that are filled with joy. Our society is twisted and it's crooked. But as Christians, we stand straight. Why? Because we measure our lives by the word of God. God sets the standard, not this world. The world is dark. There is darkness all around us. But we carry the light. We carry the light of Christ. Finally, verses 17 and 18. There's a promise in this. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering eh, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That is its quite graphic, isn't it? It's not very nice. It's the most solemn reference in the entire letter that Paul writes here. And he understands that martyrdom is an incredibly realistic prospect for him. This scene that he sets, this scene of the altar of the sacrifice, yet so bizarrely is pierced with joy. How much that shows us of somebody with a real faith in Jesus Christ, that something so awful as death can be marked with joy. The words of verse 16 that we just read, the verses of 17, they follow each other. Paul has struggled hard to bring these guys the word of life. He asks them to hold fast to it or all of his struggles would be in vain. But in verse 17, he recognizes their service. He recognizes their support and what they've done. And he says to suffer and sacrifice for you is an honor. That's what he's saying. I'm glad and so should you be. It's crazy, isn't it? It's mental that I can die and I can be glad. And also, so should you be. But you know, to the Christian, to us, it's not a crazy concept. Because true joy comes in death. In the eternal life that we will spend with God. Paul gets it. Paul understands that in his submission, he understands that the beauty of God, he will see it all in eternity. And he understands that because of that, he's free. So no matter what happens to him, no matter what happens to him in death, he is free. So what's the promise? Where's the joy in all of this? There is something, the joy in this comes from Paul's submission. It comes from the submission that we see in this. The world's philosophy is that joy comes from pleasure, that joy comes from getting what we want, that joy comes from doing what I think is right. As long as I have what I want, as long as I'm doing what I want, I'll be happy. As long as I get my way, things are great, nothing could be better. But the example and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ is fundamental proof that the world's philosophy is wrong. Jesus never used the sword. Yet he won the greatest battle in history. He won the battle against sin and death and hell. 
There was nothing greater. There was nothing greater than that fact that Christ died so that we might have life. That's true love. A love that's not selfish. That isn't all about what I want. That isn't about vanity. That's a love that serves others. That's a love that cares about others before themselves. The love of our saviour saves from the hatred. It saves from all that is being created in sin in this world. In Luke 14 we read, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What a humble guy Paul is in all of this. Do we humble ourselves? Do we humble ourselves before the king of kings? Do we submit ourselves to the authority, to the power and to the wisdom of God? Because that is where we will find joy. We will find true joy in our submission to God. How incredibly against anything in this world is that? That true joy is found in God. The word submission, how negative are the connotations of the word submission? But in actual fact, in all of its beauty, when we look at it, when we see it for what it is, it's incredible. In the marriage mandate in Ephesians 5, we see something of the incredible beauty of submission. As something of a wife to a husband, of a husband that loves as Christ loved the church. This incredible image. This image of such beauty. How can we not want to submit ourselves to the God that gave us everything? The God that came to earth, that took on flesh, that came as a servant, was crucified and rose again. Paul understood submission to this God. He understood the servant God that came to earth. And that's what he's telling these people. Cling to it. Cling to it for all you've got. And go out there and do something with it. Sort yourselves out first. Cut the nonsense. Get your own house in order. And go out and be lights. Paul urges the church to follow the example of Christ. To show the outworking of their salvation. And to hold fast to the message of Christ. Joy is the mark of Paul. Joy is the mark of this man. Joy in everything. Even in the thought of what will be a gruesome death. He understood that the gospel of Christ was bigger than him. He understood that if it took his death to strengthen the faith of others, so be it. Are we working out our salvation? Are we doing something with the message that Jesus Christ is King, the relationship with God is possible only through Christ? Do our behaviours, do our habits, do our actions, do our words portray to this world that we are called to be among, do they portray that we are a people striving after Christ? Are we as a church working out our communal salvation? 
Are we working as a body to conform more and more to the image of Christ? Are we focused on being a people that sees God's glory going out into Hamilton and further afield? Ultimately, are we a submissive people? Are we a people that know and understand submission to God? Because I believe that if we grow, continue to grow in our submission, if we continue to consume what is good and what is right, if we continue to be a people that absorb ourselves in the Word, that communicate with our Lord, that come before Him on our knees, with our needs, when we thank Him, when we praise Him for all that He has done, God will work among us. God will grow us, God will stretch us, it will not be easy. But ultimately we will see God's kingdom extended. It's incredible. It's incredible to see the joy of this man. It's incredible to see this message that he takes to them. And that's the question I want to leave with you this evening. Are we working out our salvation? Let's pray. Lord God, it's it's incredible, Lord, that scene at Calvary. Our God that took on flesh in the form of a servant that came to earth, did incredible things and was punished and was killed. A saviour hanging on a tree because he loves us. A saviour that defeated sin. That defeated death. Lord, would that be our motivation in everything? Lord, would our motivation be to see that message of Christ, the glorious message, the only message that brings hope and joy and salvation? Lord, would you would you drive us, would you challenge us to be a people that emulate Christ? to see his kingdom grow in this community. In your name we pray. Amen.